Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. This morning, if you would, take out your Bible and turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. You know, it is really good to be able to, on a weekly basis, spend time in God's Word, uh, hearing from Him and being reminded of His love for us, but also the call that He places in our life to action. So 1 John chapter 4. You know, love... Love is a confusing thing. Would you agree with me? Like love is not always so cut and dry. And especially when we live in our culture and in our world, there are so many words or there are so many ways in which we describe love, right? And, and they don't mean the same thing. Like sometimes, you know, I was, I was listening just in my home as, through the conversations this week and uh, just listened to my girls and how they interacted with me and, and with their, their mom and and this word love is used a lot in my home. Uh, sometimes we, we say things like, I love what's for dinner. I love pizza. And then we may say something like, I, I love this movie, or I love playing games, or, or I, I love you, mom, or I love you, dad. And we use the same word over and over again. And I, I constantly are reminding my kids that I love them, and I'm telling my wife how much I love her. This word is used a lot, and it's used in a lot of different ways. But it can't all mean the same thing. right? If I, if I were to express my love for my wife, in the way that I love pizza. Like there's a problem with that, right? They, they don't mean the same thing. They can't possibly mean the same thing. And yet in our world, we use this word so flippantly. We don't, we have this constant like working definition of love. And, and really what we mean a lot of times when we say this word is I prefer or I like, right? I, I prefer pizza or I like pizza above some of the other foods, but I don't love it in the same way that I love my wife or the same way that I love my kids. So we've got this kind of schizophrenia going on in our world because we just don't really know how to define love and what it really is. Because sometimes what we mean when we say love is we mean it in a romantic way. Right, like a, I love my wife, or we hear these musicians over and over throughout the ages have come up with love songs, right? Each one of these love songs are trying to express this romantic type of love that, the, the, that may exist between two people. One of the, the songs that I think has, uh, in my generation, has sought to define love is the song Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. You guys know the song. Right, like this is a working definition of love for the world. This is, love is never gonna give you up. It's never gonna let you down. It's never gonna run around and desert you. Never gonna make you cry. Never gonna say goodbye. Never gonna tell a lie and hurt you. Right, that's a pretty good definition of love, right? Right, if this is what love is, if this is the definition of love, we see something very important about it. That this is an inadequate definition of love. 
Though it may seem good and though the one may have the best intentions to live in this way, even with the best intentions, if this is the standard of love, we see that we all fall short of it. Like think for a moment of the person that you love the most. Not like the romantic love. I'm talking about like the love. Like who do you love the most? And then use this as a definition or a rubric to place over your life for that person that you love. Have you ever hurt the person that you love? Have you ever fallen short and not met their expectations? Has there ever been challenges or disagreements between you and the person that you love? Have you ever made the person you love cry? The problem with defining love according to the way the world defines love in any way that the world defines love is even the best worldly love is tainted with sin. The world's standard of love can't even live up to its own expectations, even to its own, uh, its, its own standards. And we are in desperate need of help because we cannot love on our own. The best we can do is be selfish. We are in desperate need of help. And so over the past several weeks, we've been walking through 1 John. We've been going through this series entitled Forgotten, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again. You see, for many in our culture, the word love has been emptied of its meaning. And so what we've been doing through this series is seeking to recapture God's design for love and making sure how do we live it out and how do we live others in this way. Today, as we look at 1 John chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 7. But what we're going to see today is the truth for the day is that God is love. God is love. And we've, I've said this before, but because God is the creator, because there was a time when nothing existed before God, besides God himself, there was a time in which God began to create. And in this creative order, because he created everything, he has the right to make all the rules. He gets to set the standard of what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. And we see that God, in his essence, we see that he is love. So he gets a chance to define what love is and what love isn't. And God is love. It's part of his nature. It's his character. It's part of his very essence. And so today, as we look at God is love, what we're going to see is this beautiful unfolding of love comes through the Godhead, comes through the Trinity. As we sang about it just a little bit ago, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. What we need to see is that God's love is defined through the Father, through the Son, and through the Spirit. And all of this in its essence is folded in love, surrounded in love, and captured with love, and, and uh, given all through love. Now we're gonna need the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. Because when we see this word love, you have to throw out everything you've ever thought love is according to the world. And let's let God redefine love this morning. The first thing that we're going to see in this passage is that love begins with the Father. That's where it starts. It begins with God the Father. Look at me in verse 7 and we can see this. 
John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever love has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Where does love begin? It begins with God. And so John, as he's writing, again, we see he uses this phrase, beloved. He uses this phrase uh, uh, quite frequently in the book of 1 John. And in this essence, what he's saying is, is I'm writing to you as my family because I love you and I want you to know this deep abiding truth that changes everything. You see, the, here's the beauty of, of truth is that, that truth is something that changes our life. It's not just something that constantly changes. Truth doesn't change, but truth changes our life. So he wants us to see here, beloved. And then he gives us this impossible command. Don't you love how scripture a lot of times has impossible commands? Well, we see this impossible command here. He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever love has been born of God and knows God. Look at this right off the bat. He doesn't just say, like, begin with loving God. He's not saying that the command is to love God because that may be easier, Right? It may be easier for us to have love for, for a God that may seem distant or a, a God that we may not know. That might be easy, but that's not what he says. He says we're called to love one another. We're called to love others because they were, have been created in the image of God. We're not called just to love the people that we like, but we're called to love one another, which is an impossible command because we can't even love the people that we love, let alone let love the people that we don't love. So John now begins to redefine our understanding of love because even though in our human experience, it's impossible, we see though that we're called to do it. And so there must be some way in which if we're called to do it, that God allows us to love in this way. And he says this, that love is from God. Love does not initiate or begin inside of us. Love initiates and begins outside of us. Love begins from God. And then this love transcends itself to us through two ways. In order for us to be able to love in this way, we must first be born of God, which is what it says there, and we must also know God. These are two things that are required in order for us to be able to love is we must be born of God and we must know God. For if we do love, then we do are born and we do know God. But if we do not love, then we do not know God. So love begins with the Father. If we ever hope to love, first we must know God. But therein lies the problem. You see, each person rejects the knowledge of God, right? Each one of us in, in our lives, we reject the knowledge of God. We are born with a certain knowledge of God, and yet we reject him. You're like, well, I don't believe that. Well, let me read to you Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 19. This is what Paul writes. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. So what, what Paul is talking about is all creation, there's a certain uh, sense in which God has created each one of us to know something about God. 
that even by looking at creation, we can know that there is a God. That's what he says in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So what, what Paul is saying here is that, that God's love has led to creation and through creation, we can see that the, there are certain attributes of a God that is out there. His eternal power and his divine nature. We know that there is a God and yet what has happened in our hearts and in our minds is that we've given up and we've rejected God and we've turned to worship earthly things. Instead of worshiping the creator, we turn to worship the created. Even though we owe our existence to God, we reject him. In each one of our hearts, each one of our minds, we say to ourselves and we say to God that I know better. I know the way that I'm supposed to live. I don't want you in my life. And as image bearers of God, when we reject him, this rejecting God offends him. It's not the way you and I get offended in the world today. Not, not, not the way you and I feel when someone cuts us off or, or someone goes ahead of us when they're not supposed to or they, they get out of line. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not even talking about being offended the way in which you would feel if your child that you've given life to and you've given everything to as your child rejects you as painful as that might be in the human experience. What God is saying here is that our rejection of him offends him in an even deeper way than we can experience in our, home, our, our human experience. God's perfection and love is rejected by all of humanity. You and I are rejectors of God's love and God has to respond to our rejection with Wrath. Did you hear that? What, what, how God responds to our rejection, if we, we look even back in Romans chapter uh, eight, or chapter one, verse 18, which is prior to uh, what I just read, verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by their, their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. So our rejecting of God brings about his wrath. In the, in the way that we understand the world today, we don't see that love and wrath commingle together. Right? We see them as, as polar opposites, as, as different things that cannot exist at the same time, where we have the understanding that love drives wrath away or wrath drives love away. But that's not so when we look at how our offense and our rebellion is perceived by the God of the universe. Don Carson says this. He says, normally we do not think that a wrathful person is loving, but this is not the way it is with God. God's wrath is not blind rage. 
God's wrath is an entirely reasonable and willed response to the offenses against his holiness. At the same time, his love wells up amidst his perfections and is generated by the loveliness of the loved. Thus, there is nothing intrinsically impossible about wrath and love being directed towards the same individual or people at once. God in his perfection must be wrathful against his rebel image bearers, for they have offended him. God in his perfection must be loving towards his rebel image bearers, for he is that kind of God. You see, it's right for God to have wrath. God is love. We got to get this right. God is love. God is not wrath. God is love, but God also has wrath. Do you see the difference? Rebellion, it is not loving for rebellion to go unpunished. Right, parents? Right, it's not loving for you to raise your kids and not give them discipline when they go outside of the bounds of what is proper and what is right. It's not loving. It's not loving if you were to see your friend running as fast as they can to a cliff that they don't know that the cliff is there. If you see it because of your perspective and you see your friend running towards the edge of that cliff and you know that if they keep going, they're gonna die, it's not loving for you to tell them no. It is loving for you to say, stop, you're going the wrong way. You're headed towards danger. And this is so foreign because the way in the world says, don't, don't oppress me. Don't tell me no. Don't tell me to stop. We see that love, God's love, also has wrath because it's there. Has, sin has to be punished. And so we know that there's nothing that we can do on our own to escape the wrath of God. God knows that he loves us and God must justify his wrath so something else must happen. Wrath has to be satisfied. Justice must come. And yet God is still loving. So what did he do? Well, we see in this passage that love is personified in the Son. So love comes from God, but now we're gonna see that love is personified in the Son, Jesus. Look at me in verse nine. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love for us is made known through the sending of Jesus into the world. See, our rebellion stirred up God's wrath and now God's love pursues the rebel. This is exactly the opposite of what we see happening in the world today. If someone rebels against you, someone hurts you, someone offends you, how do you respond? Well, the world says we respond in anger. We, we respond in distancing ourselves from them, even going to the point of even saying that person is now dead to me if someone hurts you deeply enough. But that's not the way that we see God responding. God chases 
after us. We sang about this earlier. His love comes running after us as we are rebelling against God, saying, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I know better. I know how I'm supposed to live. We see God chasing after us. And he chases after us in the person of Jesus. And as God is coming after us, so many times we get this wrong. We we understand because God opens our eyes to see our sin, to see our rebellion. And sometimes we think that God is coming after us with his wrath. Right? I, I know there were times when I disobeyed in my house and my mom would say, just wait till your dad gets home. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Just wait until your dad gets home. And then I hear my dad pull up into the, uh, into the driveway and open up the, the, the house door. I would run to my bed and hide under my bed because I knew what was coming. I knew that I had to pay the price for what I had done. That's not how God responds to us. God does not come after us with his wrath. God chases after us with his love so that his wrath can be justified. See, it's a totally different perspective. Like, isn't that a way in which we would want to run to that God? Who says, I forgive you, I love you. But we get it so wrong in our minds. We want to run away from God instead of running to him. He says here, this is love. That we didn't love God first. It is, it's not, God's love for us is not motivated by our love for him. God's love for us is motivated towards us because of our rejection of him. And we rejected him and so he comes after us by sending his son Jesus. Why is Jesus so important? Because Jesus deals with the wrath for our rebellion. This is so important. This is so huge is that Jesus steps in because sin has to be punished. Life and and blood have to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is what we see throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that God gave his people a, a sacrificial system so that they would understand that sin has a cost, rebellion has a cost, and so they would have to give the life of their animals and, and blood would have to be spilled. But that system pointed to one that would come that would be the ultimate sacrifice. And so we see in this verse that God sent his only son into the world. So what Jesus does is he comes in the form of a helpless babe who has taken on flesh. So he's fully God and fully man, but he's, he's taken on all of our pain. He's, he's taken on all of our, 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 our humanness while at the same time being fully God. And what Jesus does is he lives his life fully loving the Father, being of the Father, but also in a deep, intimate relationship with the Father so that he knows the way he's supposed to go and he obeys every step of the way. He never rebels, he only obeys. And Jesus came with the purpose to die for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, for our sake, he made him, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus 
at, on the cross took on all of the sin of the world and the wrath of God that was do you and to do me was poured out on his son, Jesus. Now, I love this verse. We've, we've talked about verse 10 um, already a couple times in this sermon series. But he says that Jesus is our propitiation for our sins. Now, remember, I, I talked to you about that word is, is that it's not just a word that happens one time, but it's an ongoing word. And what it means in this context is it has to deal with God's wrath. You see, every time we sin and the rebellion in our hearts, every time there is rebellion, it stirs up God's wrath. Right, it, it stirs, it offends him because we, every time we turn away from him, we're saying, God, I don't need you. I don't love you. I don't want you. And because God is a jealous God, it, it offends him. And so what, what John is telling us here about Jesus, what makes it so special is that not only does Jesus uh, uh, carry the wrath of God, the moment of our salvation, does he forgive all the sin of the past? But as we continue to live and as we continue to sin, Jesus is continually enduring our wrath that he did on the cross. And so it's an ongoing freeing that God gives us over and over and over again. So this love is personified in Jesus because it takes care of the wrath of God. And so we know that love and wrath mingle together on the cross of Calvary. And Romans chapter five, verse 11, shows how we should respond. It says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. What Jesus has done is he's reconciled us back to God. The, the gulf that separated the two of us because God is holy and we are sinful has been reconciled through the person of Jesus. Jesus was sent by the Father to sacrifice his very life so that we might live. This is the greatest gift of love that is imaginable. Because not only did Jesus die to pay for our sins, but he was raised to life again so that we may now truly live, live true life. So where is Jesus in your life? What place does he hold in your life? We know that, that God, that love is from God. It's personified in Jesus. But you know, it's not enough just to know about Jesus. You can come here on a weekly basis and every week you're gonna hear about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You're gonna hear that. And you may know it in your mind. You may say over and over again, yeah, I know it. I know this is the truth. I know this is the truth. But it's not at that point of just knowing it that it becomes saving for you. You see, each one of us not, must not only understand it in our mind, but we must receive it as our only hope. We must begin by repenting of our sins, confessing the fact that we are rebels against God, and we must say, we must feel something about that. But then at the same time, we must turn and trust in Jesus as our only hope. You see, we can know God and experience his love and life. This is what he promises us here. Not only can we experience his love, but he gives us life. You see, many, many people in the world today aren't experiencing life. They're experiencing existence. 
They're just wading through this thing called life until something else comes along or until they die. That's just existence. But we see in this passage that he doesn't want us just to exist. But what we get is life. Not only do we get life that's eternal, that's what he promises, is that uh, life in, in eternity, we get to be with God. But he also gives us life today. Like we have the opportunity to experience life as we walk through the pains in this life. This is nothing that the world can give us. The world can't give us life. All the world can do is dull our pain. I had the best experience of, of this life, this living power in Jesus in one of the darkest moments of my life. It was shortly after my mom passed away. Uh, when I was 16 years old, my mom, my mom passed away. And, and over the next year, my life disintegrated around me. And finally, I was eventually abandoned by my dad. And so I was living all alone, all by myself. The support system that I had had crumbled all around me. Those that I loved were all gone now. And it was in that moment, in those moments, that I went to God with my pain. And I've never felt God be more close to me than in those moments. It's almost as though he was there by my side ministering to my pain, reminding me that it is okay and that he loves me and that it's gonna be all right. This is life, that we can endure the pains of life because we know that Jesus is on our side, that Jesus is with us. All the world says is when you go through difficult pain or go through difficulties in life, try to find something that dulls the pain. But Jesus says, bring me your pain and I will breathe my life into you again. So not only do we get life, but we also have the capacity to love others. Once we experience the sacrificial love of Jesus, we are able to love. We have a certain capacity to love. But the problem is we still find that it's hard to love. Anybody here today? Like it's like, okay, I know I'm supposed to love and now have the capacity to love, but it's still hard to love. So what do I do? Well, we see the answer here in verse 11 and 12. You see, love is perfected through the Spirit. Not only is love from God, it's personified in Jesus, but it's perfected through the Spirit. Again, you see the Godhead coming together in our lives as it relates to love. Look at me in verse 11. He uses this word beloved again. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, love is never passive. God didn't sit back and, and just say, okay, you rebellious children, go do however you want to. No, God came after us. And as God has shown us the way to love, we should love in the same way he loves. So we do have the capacity to love. And now we see that he gives us the power through the spirit to actually do it. See, what he's saying here is no one has ever seen God. You see, the world, though they know there is a God, no one in the world has ever seen God because of the depravity of our hearts and the blindness of our sin. We have no capacity or ability to see God. So how is the world going to see God? They're gonna see God through the way that we love others. 
We become the face of God in the lives of the people as we are walking in the power of the Spirit is the power that abides in us, that lives inside of us, that helps perfect love to the world. So love is perfected through us. A love that sacrifices for that which it loves. Love that gives up itself for the sake of the other. Not a selfish kind of love that we see in the world, but a love that says, I'll do this for you because it benefits you. I will give of myself. I will give of who I am. I will give of what I have so that you may see Jesus more clearly, so that you may be more like him. Love pursues the unloved. Love gives to others so they may experience the love of God. You see, our lives should be marked by love, by sacrificial love, where we're giving up ourselves for others. And if we look around the world today, what we see is it seems as though darkness is continuing to close in, that the world is becoming a more and more dark place where hate is on the rise and, and people uh, live from a place of selfishness and pride. And as this world is growing darker, the light of those that follow Jesus will shine brighter. Do you hear that? Like we're called in this season of life, in this season of history, to be light in the darkness. And as it gets darker in there, that just means that our light is gonna shine brighter. That the world is gonna look to us and they're gonna say, why are you different? Why do you love in this way? And we say, because we've experienced the love of Jesus. So how do we do this? We go to the darkness. We are called to go to the darkness. We come here every Sunday and we get an opportunity as the light of the world to come and have our lights recharged by being reminded. And then God calls us throughout the week to go to the darkness. You are called to invade the darkness. You're not called just to exist and to just go through the mundane cycle of your life. You're called to bring light to the darkness. That means we act in love towards others that are around us. That means we spend time in the darkness. That's a scary thing, right? We go to invade the darkness. This means that you get to know your neighbors because not every one of your neighbors knows Jesus. I'm sure if you walk through your neighborhood, you know there's a lot of darkness going on there. There are marriages that are on the brink of, of, of shattering. We know that there are children that are homes that are abusive. We know that we live in the darkness and let us not pretend that it's not there. But let us go to those places and be Jesus's light. You know, today as we are reminded of the sanctity of, of life Sunday, I want us to draw our attention to the call to even fight for the unborn. Not, not just say that we're against abortion, but let's do something about it. Let's move so that we can do something about it. Not only care for the unborn, but care for the mothers of these children. All too often and far too often, the church has been very quick to condemn those that have messed up and those that have sinned. We're super good at that. 
Like we're super good at calling out everyone else's sin and condemning people for that, but that's not what Jesus calls us to do. Just as Jesus doesn't condemn you, so we should not condemn. Instead, we, we run after those that find themselves in brokenness and pain and we show them the love of Jesus. You know, I love the fact that we've got some, uh, some groups that are very, very serious about taking light to the darkness. Several weeks ago, I was talking about Gianna House. Remember the, the, the house that is um, in the area that is caring for young mothers. Those young mothers that might, may uh, find themselves being pregnant instead of just casting them out into the world to fend for themselves. Gianna House, what they do is they're seeking to allow uh, young women to come and to learn how can they care for their baby. How can they provide for their baby? So there's, they give education to these young mothers. They give an opportunity for a safe place for this child to be born and to even begin to experience life. And so I was talking about Gianna House and we had a group, one of our life groups. One of the leaders of that life group said, I'm now passionate about this. I wanna do something about this. So what they did is they contacted Gianna House and they, they got together and did like this big um, baby shower. They collected things for, for the, the mothers there and for the opportunities that are, that are there. And this is a real tangible way of beginning to invade the darkness. Allow the Lord to prick your heart towards something and then do something about it. If you don't know what to do about it, come talk to us. I would love to share with you how you can engage in whatever area that you feel God calling you to. But let us be people that don't just sit back and do nothing but instead, let us love. Let us sacrificially pursue those that are in darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words today. Father, I'm thankful for the fact that you pursued us in our brokenness and in our rejecting of you. And Father, today I pray if there's someone that's here that understands that they're a rebel, that understands that they have, have lived a life against you, but is now ready to receive your love. Father, I pray today that they would turn their eyes to Jesus. They would repent of their sin and yet embrace Jesus as their hope and their salvation. But Father, for many of us, as we've lived this life, we have understood that God is love, but we've been selfish with the love of God. We've kept it to ourselves and we've gone about our good Christian lives without even giving acknowledgement to the fact that we're called to do more than just exist. Father, for some of us, we've taken the light that you've given us and we've hid it. We don't want the world to know that we are believers. We don't want the world to know that we've been forgiven by you. Father, forgive us. But help us, God, to have our eyes open so that we may see your goodness and that we may move to love others with the power that it already resides inside of us. God, you're not calling us to do something you have not equipped us for. But Father, you've given us everything that we need because your spirit abides in us. 
May the year 2021 be a year of engagement. May we see darkness around us. May we see pain around us. Instead of avoiding it, Father, may we run to it to bring the love of Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.